Hey everyone, this is Sina with another episode of Into the Bytecode. Today I sat down with Django and Nicholas from Juicebox. Juicebox is a programmable funding protocol. You might have come across it as the protocol that powered SharkDAO, ConstitutionDAO, AssangeDAO. It's an incredibly ambitious project that's trying to reconceptualize the relationship between shareholders, contributors, uh, how we conceive of a business or an organization from the ground up. And I think one of the most interesting things about the project is how the Juicebox DAO is built on top of the Juicebox protocol. There is a full closed loop and they're dogfooding this protocol in operating their own organization. I also want to give a shout out to Nicholas who runs an awesome podcast called Web3 Galaxy Brain. He goes deep into smart contracts and how they're architected. And as you'll hear, he's a very thoughtful and articulate person. So I recommend you check him out. Before jumping in, I also want to give a note that nothing we talk about here should be construed as investment advice. Getting into the conversation, the first voice you'll hear will be Nicholas and Django coming in soon after that. I hope you enjoy. I first discovered Juicebox uh, last year in 2021 in July and um, fell down the rabbit hole via SharkDAO, which was a project on the protocol. I think really the, the it was the largest project at the time when it came out and it was um, a group of people raising ETH to purchase nouns right at the beginning of the nouns project. Um, and they successfully purchased the second noun on mainnet um, and a bunch of other nouns after that uh, and have one of the most iconic iconic nouns, actually the shark. Mm-hmm. Um, so I came in through that project. I was interested in nouns and then I, I found SharkDAO and, and I was curious how uh, SharkDAO managed to raise the funds. And that's how I landed on Juicebox, which is the protocol they used to, to build their project. And I pretty quickly fell in love. I, I thought there were a bunch of interesting, I thought it had a great um, ethic and position. It's a DAO building DAO tooling for other DAOs, as well as other projects that maybe don't consider themselves DAOs, but just have uh, a desire to use decentralized rails for mm. doing whatever their project might be. There's a lot of projects that are trying to build uh, picks and shovels for the gold rush, whereas this really is a part of the the shift to doing uh, project organizing via decentralized tooling and, and, and via Ethereum. So mm. it was a very appealing project and there were a bunch of network effects and, and things that I found interesting about the protocol at first. Um, among them, I noticed that there were uh, independent contributors to the Juicebox DAO who had decided to very early on in the history of the protocol split off into their own projects and mm-hmm. collect talent with related skills to turn that into projects that could then be service providers to other projects on the protocol. And this is like, just to call them out, maybe like Canoe DAO and yeah. Peel DAO, which is building that, the website, the, the kind of main front end for the protocol. Yeah, definitely. Uh, those uh, Canoe does community management. Um, uh, Peel does front end development. Wagme does uh, what I call meme warfare. Uh, Wagme are the creators of uh, Banny, the the joint smoking banana, who's the mascot of Juicebox. Um, <laughs> yeah, and they all these organizations have varying degrees of other relationships with other projects. They could be on the protocol or not, but the interesting thing about being on the protocol is, uh, I guess we can get a little bit into the basic mechanic, which is uh, when a payment is made to a project, the project issues tokens to the, the person who paid or parameters can be set to, to split those up in different ways. But the essential mechanism is money goes into a project and that project's own tokens 
are distributed to the, the, the address that made the payment. So it's interesting because it sort of naturally leads to an ecosystem of projects and allows for projects to be stakeholders in each other, especially in the ones that they have financial relationships with. I really appreciated that orientation where we could imagine a genuine alternative to, I think a lot of uh, startups are on this treadmill where, you know, even really inspiring companies like Apple to me as a child was a very inspiring story and it continues to be a, a great product company. But I, I think there may be problems with 150,000 person organizations in general. I think that they have certain limitations. They always have to be growing. They have this quarterly performance uh, requirements, et cetera. So, and they always need to be expanding into new areas and growing what it is that they do in order to keep the stock price rising, et cetera. So I, I'm interested in one angle on what decentralized organizations can change in societies, potentially allowing for much smaller organizations that have a much more specific remit. Um, and so those are some of the things that, that interested me about Juicebox in the first place. I, I hung around and was a contributor for about seven months. I took a few months off. Uh, I was interested in doing some NFT projects. And after a few months of tooling around, I, I realized there just was nowhere else that I wanted to work uh, rather than on uh, on Juicebox, uh, for Juicebox DAO and on, on the Juicebox protocol. It's just so compelling to me. So after a few months break, I, I came back and uh, started poking around and seeing if people would be interested in having me be a contributor. And for context, when I decided to to take some time off and, and step away, everyone was very understanding and there was no bad blood or any feelings like a betrayal or anything like that. People were very supportive. You know, if, if you don't want to, if you want to do something else, go do that. You, you'll, you'll be doing the best work you can if you're passionate about it. And I think that's the general ethos at Juicebox DAO. And one of the things that makes the Juicebox ecosystem special is that there is this feeling that everyone is there by choice. No one is forced to be there. No one is... Uh, coerced to be there at all. Everyone's really choosing to be there, especially Juicebox DAO is the one I know the best. And I think that that ethos spreads to some extent to other projects in this early culture of Juicebox. So when I decided to come back, I, I said, hey, would, you know, would people be interested? I, I'm, I'm, I just can't stop thinking about Juicebox. So I'd like to come back. And people were very supportive of the idea. Uh, there were, uh, you probably saw in the Discord, people were very uh, ecstatic about the idea in, in via React and messages. And so I followed the same process that uh, we've kind of naturally evolved over time. I think part of it comes from Django and, and other uh, early contributors to the, the DAO. But this process of um, basically we perceive of the DAO, at least I'll speak for myself, I perceive of the DAO as a, a permeable DAO where we allow anonymous contributors, we encourage contributions from anyone, including people who don't have a resume or uh, reputation. They're not going to import their Web2 reputation into the Web3 ecosystem. And so in order to prove out who they are and to build trust, we have a, a, a kind of uh, process that is just suggested. Anything could happen. You could do something different. But uh, the way people seem to successfully onboard into working for the DAO is exactly what I did when I came back. And, and that process was making a few little contributions, hanging around, getting back up to speed with what's going on. Um, so doing little helpful things around the Discord, around the DAO, and then making a governance proposal for a one-time trial payout. And Juicebox DAO operates on a two-week uh, governance and funding cycle. So I made a proposal to do a trial uh, two weeks working for the DAO for a smaller, I don't remember what the sum was, but something around $500 to $1,500 is, is a typical amount. 
And uh, in that period, I, I suggested some things that I could do during two weeks or four weeks. I forget how long exactly I did the trial. And I made the proposal to governance and it allowed uh, the members of the DAO, the holders of the JBX token to vote if they were in favor of that. In the end, they were. So I did a trial payout and sort of built further rapport with the current set of people who were building the DAO and the protocol and uh, sort of narrowed down what it is that I could work on. And then after two or four weeks, uh, our typical durations, um, a couple governance cycles, I made another proposal for a recurring payout. And those are uh, seven cycles long, so about 90, 100 days uh, long and have to be renewed every 90 or 100 days. And those recurring payouts mean that you get paid every two weeks uh, and typically at a, a somewhat higher salary than the original trial payout. So it lets you sort of build the contributor, build rapport with the, the group, see that there's a good fit and something that they really want to do. And it's easier. Of course, someone could just drop in and say, hey, I want to immediately do a recurring payout proposal, but they'll have a harder time winning governances, governance right. votes. So I think one thing that makes Juicebox unique is that uh, while it's not currently uh, on-chain governance, like some really on-chain maxi DAOs, I do actually think it has a very healthy governance process where we do anywhere between eight and 25 proposals per two weeks. Uh, it happens regularly on a two-week cycle, and we have a lot of engaged people voting. And it's, it's not like a, a very rare process to have something succeed in governance. Instead, it's very common that the DAO is giving input on what they feel is worthwhile spending money on. Totally, totally. It's almost, you know, seeing, seeing this proposals channel in the discord and these proposals get regularly approved. It's almost a narrative violation of a larger group of people being able to make decisions quickly. I definitely want to get into some of the nuances of how you think about decision-making and how these sorts of things have evolved. But I think one of the things that has happened in other DAOs that are, you know, fully on chain, every token holder has to vote, uh, you know, and some quorum needs to be reached is that decisions just don't make, don't get made. And like, you know, especially risky or somehow non-consensus decisions don't get made, but we can, we can get to that. Django, maybe if you want to jump in, how does the juice box protocol itself work? And I think it has, you know, some very wise ideas like these funding cycles that Nicholas was talking about, this notion of like default expiry, people opting into things, uh, always having an ability to exit. I'm curious, like, what are the core design goals or pillars of the protocol and how you think about them? Yeah, so that's this has evolved uh, over time from the original seed of thought, which was meant to solve another problem. Uh, me and some friends were having trying to build mobile apps in Web2 uh, and has certainly evolved uh, through those early days of Juicebox that Nicholas was describing into the protocol that it, uh, it is today, this more kind of evolved version two of it. The original seed of thought was, hey, if we're building software as a service, uh, the unit economics doesn't really justify charging per unit. You can just obviously always dish out more copies of your software. And sure, you have to maintain these, these costs for serving your compute and your databases and paying people to build. But a lot of spend goes into like advertising and growth and stuff like that, uh, where uh, a lot of the projects I was working on in 2015, 2016, we were just bringing 
users into a Slack channel at the time and really building a community with our users and talking about what we were building and being very open with conversations. Uh, and so it was hard to uh, like bridge the, the product we wanted to build with also the financial aspect and figure out like what to charge. And then meanwhile, everyone around was slapping subscription models on things or telling people to like overcharge because like, you know, you have to like whatever, whatever. And I, I think like I had a seed of thought that was just too compelling to not uh, really follow follow up on. I, I have all the inputs to, to put up a number, like what does it cost to sustain this project? Um, and I could come to that number on a monthly basis, you know, that aggregate all, all costs for service providers and um, what we wanted to get paid. And I could put that number out there. Let's say it's like 20K a month. Uh, then the users, you could suggest a monthly price or a price, and then users could pay as much or as as, as little. Um, and if that cost was not met, then we would turn off the service and we could, could do something else. Great. If the cost was, uh, if we had a, abundant uh, fees come in, then everyone's price could be uh, essentially pushed towards zero as we got more people using it. Because, you know, if we get a thousand more people using the app and ping, then everyone's price gets pushed towards zero because the core cost of running it uh, doesn't scale at the same rate. So then everyone's someone incentivized to help be the propagation machine, right? Uh, so we're not spending extra on ads, we're just spending extra on people as they pay fees. And so the, the initial model was great. How can we, um, and I started trying to build this in, in web two stacks with banking APIs and cloud functions. And it was actually a lot of fun, but really, really complex. And just like, you can imagine uh, like trying to talk to banking providers of how to manage these like one-off refunds. Um, that really became the product we ended up. Uh, wow, crazy. So you were trying to build a thing that someone at any time could like, kind of like end their subscription and, as like more users came in, the price of everyone else's subscription would adjust at the same time and go down. Exactly. Something like that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, yeah. So, and uh, in, in trying to express it in like Web2 world, there would be these refund calls and like these escrow accounts and whatever, whatever. It's just super, super pain in the ass. But like I was very convinced that this was a compelling business model for, for like indie SaaS projects that didn't want to pursue VC or like, uh, follow the like the bait of like quote how does this become a billion dollar project which like I don't give a fuck about so it started as this like business model kind of like idea like a new business model which like at its core was we don't we don't want to have a crazy amount of upside we instead want to build this in a more kind of like like alongside our users and as the number of users increases we're going to decrease the price for everyone and kind of like pass on the savings to them. And this will have the kind of second order effect of these users becoming all kind of like owners and champions of the product and helping propel its growth rather than us needing to like have that extra money to spend on advertising. So it was kind of exactly. like shifting to a different kind of like location in the design space. Exactly. And the builders still have leverage. Like if you push everyone's price down from like a dollar to like five cents, then like, okay, now we want to pay ourselves like three times as much. It's like, great. And everyone's price is 15 cents. It's like, you, you still maintain the leverage point, but now you're, you're playing a, like a more positive sum game between the 
the, the project builders and the community. And then you start to kind of blend those two worlds of like, who's actually building the project. And the answer is always like, like everyone who touches it, everyone who talks about it and like wherever that is in the world. Right. Um, like all that is really contributing to the, st- the sustainability, the memetics of like a concept. Um, so how do we model that? Right. And then at the same time I was, uh, uh, it was like 2017. So and I was living with someone who's working at Coinbase. So I was like accompanying very closely what was happening in crypto, but more from a, a number go up perspective. And uh, eventually in DeFi summer, it, uh, I started really being compelled by uh, these, these contracts that that folks are writing, um, you know, early days of, of DeFi. We had yams, we had sushi, we had right. uh, Wi-Fi. And that was like, really 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 incredible to start studying these contracts and hearing these developers talk about what could be done here so i started prototyping there and then really quickly realized this was the way to express the concept and so basically made the decision to basically scrap a lot of like the years of work that was in development to prototype this out Mm. in in contract land so it was really built mm. for, for from a prototyping perspective, it was built to solve that problem. And then I was going to later, once that was set up, then you can go ahead and build whatever other project you want using that as the core business model. And then wow. thinking about how to express it uh, using contracts and all the primitives that were uh, being popularized. And then what's interesting too, is like, as you switch to building this in crypto and in smart contracts, there's like behavioral change in the people who are surrounding this project, right? So it's just like a more, like people are almost more receptive to new ways of coordinating and new business models. So I imagine that was kind of an unlock to in parallel. Oh man, it was, it was a, it was a coming home moment. Like I, this, these were my, were my people, like ethos were similar. It was like very dev oriented, uh, like devs have the leverage and it was a lot, a lot more about like, building something new, questioning like the core, more like like macro econ setup that like we were building software against. Um, and that was really exciting. So we could, it, it was it was philosophical in nature and ultimately it is all about the people. So yeah, it was, it was cool making the shift. Although it was a pretty like quiet, like I'm not a really like, loud person. So I, once I like was convinced that this was the way to do it, we, I was working with some friends and we just kind of got to work and started chugging along and there's obviously learning everything along the way so it starts off as like one simple contract that does one thing and then i'm always like you know adding like what ifs what ifs what ifs and over the scope of several months it evolves to having all these these mechanics that (laughs) uh that, that that together solve the original problem but then also open up other doors for what can be expressed using these levers. So ultimately it's like, all right, cool. Ethereum gives us this global state machine, uh, which is incredible. And Juicebox kind of gives you the the, the data model uh, according to which data can be stored and accessed. And then the, the product at the end of the day, what it's become is really like, if this, then that for organizational finances. So like under what conditions can funds come into the project and what happens when they do? And under what conditions can fund leave the project or be redistributed to 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 the community or be accessed by the community, uh, mm. and, and the constraints around those. And the idea of a funding cycle is is basically taking this original kind of DeFi like core philosophy of write an unchangeable, unstoppable machine, 
um, and then scoping it into timeframes so that a project can evolve over time and set these immutable constraints with some flexibility so they can evolve in chunks of time or have total flexibility or be totally immutable depending on what they want to do. That's like the core data structure of Juiceboxes. Encode your organizational rules around funding cycles and then evolve those funding cycles over time, which is the big decision that product owners are responsible for making is the reconfigurations of these cycles. Yeah. Man, so cool hearing about the story. One of the suggested, and a lot of this stuff is tunable when someone sets up a new Juicebox project, but one of the core mechanisms is that anyone who basically sends money to a particular Juicebox project or contributes to it can receive some number of that project's governance or membership tokens in return. So there's this kind of like fluid token swap that's happening. And that's been happening in the case of Juicebox DAO itself. And this means that the, the organization and the cap table of this organization is always open to new capital contributors. You know, as I was kind of becoming more familiar with the mechanics of the protocol, you know, there's parallels to other projects that I really admire, like Nouns, for example, you know, where there's these like new NFTs going on sale every day. But then what's interesting in the case of Juicebox is that there's like additional things you can tune, like two kind of key differences with the Nouns model is that, uh, and you know, all these things are con configurable and, and a continuum at the end of the day. But one is this notion of like reserve tokens, which is that, the DAO itself can choose to anytime new tokens are being minted as a result of capital contribution, it can kind of carve off or mint an additional piece that it gives to contributors. And so in this way, it balances out uh, contributors having a voice in governance and capital, you know, capital providers having a voice in governance. And I'm just curious how you think about this tension between these two different groups. What have you learned about how it's developed in the case of Juicebox? What do you, you know, see when you look at other projects like Nouns um, that are evolving? Because this has been one of the one of the questions in my mind, in that it's it's also really hard to quantify these things on a you know, on a similar scale, like how do you quantify like what $1 worth of contribution, how many units of like, uh, mm. how many units of work that's like equivalent to? Yeah, I'm just curious how you've thought about this and how it's evolved in the case of Juicebox itself. Yeah, it, we had no idea going into how these things were going to be really useful when it was deployed. This was all a big like experiment and just great, we can put this protocol out and then we can start building stuff using it. And then as people started using it themselves, we kind of reduced our role to just making the infrastructure sturdy for, for people. Um, but the initial intuition for how Juicebox DAO was deployed, which is the first project in the protocol, and so the whole protocol and Juicebox DAO was deployed together, uh, was a 20% a reserved rate. So initially when you deploy the project, it has zero funds in the treasury um, and zero outstanding tokens. Uh, and whenever uh, funds come in either via direct contributions, just there's a, a pay button, uh, or via fees being taken from projects who are also distributing on the protocol. Uh, you're going to mint 20% of those tokens inwardly to pre-programmed addresses. At the time, it was just me and Perry. 
uh, who are the two people working on the project. And then uh, the rest, so 80% of the tokens were issued outwardly to new people. So basically, uh, if you think about it, as like you have an inward like self-preserving aspect and like an outward integrative aspect we were we were nobody and we had nothing and uh we just had like this body of work right mm -hmm. um then so it's it's a tricky point of leverage to to really like be really self-preserving when self doesn't really mean much then so uh mm -hmm. we put in 20 percent as our reserved rate and then People started and trying to like, and then we started to do the work to build projects on it. Uh, that's kind of our form of marketing. I'd rather like build stuff than go out and just talk about what we've already built. Uh, and so funds started coming in and then people started contributing. And then we realized that at some point you, we need to figure out how to manage tokens and make this thing feel uh, fair to everyone participating, right? And that's always a perennial tricky problem and we still haven't gotten this totally right. It's always a work in progress. Um, and I think over time we've tended towards 50%, like as fun funding seemed adequate to really carry out a lot of these, these projects we think are like pivotal to like the core infrastructure. And so now we're at this interesting balance of 50% of tokens issued or, or created into existence uh, will stay within the people working on the protocol. So it's very kind of owned in that way. And then 50% is still accessible for new contributors. But then meanwhile, there's uh, people that aren't DAO sponsored have stood up AMM pools to create markets in between uh, that new issuance price and, and whatever else. So there's also a pretty wide difference between what the protocol is willing to issue tokens at and what people are currently trading tokens that kind mm -hmm. of on in, in, in the open and and the protocol is like kind of it's it's kind of a bonding curve but that's also kind of adjustable by the project uh owner. exactly there's this there's one parameter called the discount rate and that's the rate at which the token issuance is going to decrease per funding cycle so for operating bi-weekly funding cycles and every two weeks the total issuance of tokens for each ETH that comes in decreases by a little bit to give everyone a uh, slight pressure to contribute sooner rather than later or pay fees sooner rather, rather than later. Um, and over time, that discount rate is also tended towards zero to stabilize issuance um, as well. But it's it's always a discussion. It's always kind of a moving, moving target. And there's always proposals and discussions that yeah. sometimes go through. Other times, they just kind of raise these, these more philosophical uh questions, which I think most people in the community are really eager to dissect and talk about, um, which makes the fairness bit a little easier since everything is done in the open. Uh, there's no sense of privileged decision-making, uh, albeit there's just like people working and people who have worked for, for a while, people who've participated in discussions for a while. So the sense of legitimacy kind of evolves organically. And sometimes the newest members have like the best ideas. Mm. Yeah, would it be useful to do like a quick rundown of the the five core mechanics? Maybe, that would be uh, awesome. Yeah, let's do maybe it. Maybe you can do the you can do the chopped and screwed version and maybe put it at the front or something if it's helpful to give context. But <laughs> basically, there's we the... can we can take our own meandering path through it. <laughs> basically, there's five in my perspective five key mechanisms in Juicebox protocol. Mm -hmm. The first one is this funding cycle we've talked about. So a project is created, it establishes it, it configures its first funding cycle to open fundraising. Uh, and the fundraising funding cycles have a bunch of different parameters. 
Uh, the first one is the funding target. That's how much you're aiming to make. So in the original Django's original example, the impetus for the whole project, that would be like, I'm working on a project. I want to make some kind of software, or maybe it's not a software, but it's an easy example. I'm, I'm working some open source project, let's say, and you know, it's going to be me and a friend and we each earn around this much in the market. So that's what we want our salaries to be to work on this project. And so our goal is our salaries times um, for the duration uh, of the funding cycle, which could be typically two weeks or a month, or you could make it even uh, open-ended duration. But in Juicebox DAO, we set it at two weeks. So you say, all right, uh, you know, this person and me, we each want $5,000 a week and we're going to do a two-week cycle. So we need $20,000. That's our funding target. And anything that you raise above your funding target falls into what's called overflow. And overflow is uh, funds that are not accessible during that funding cycle. You'll need to set a new funding cycle and a new funding target, and that funding target can eat into the overflow. Uh, so it's sort of like money that's set aside that you have not yet earmarked for anything, and it just sits in this overflow pool. And uh, when a person makes a contribution, as Django mentioned, either through the pay function or maybe buying an NFT and it sends its uh, primary sales revenue or secondary royalties to a juice box project, all those um, uh, revenue sources generate tokens. So money comes in and tokens are generated outwardly. So all the tokens for all the projects are by default, at least uncapped token supply, mm. which is part of the reason that tokens like JBX, the token associated with the juice box project, the juice box DAO, uh, are difficult to, um, they, they aren't as easily made into speculative tokens as uh, projects that do like one-time large airdrops where they mm -hmm. have a fixed total supply and a pie chart of who's getting how many tokens. Instead with Juicebox projects, you start with zero tokens issued and people who make financial contributions one way or another are receiving tokens in exchange. It's, it's, it's a very interesting balance between pre-committing to an inflation schedule of like when value flows into the DAO, new tokens are minted and it's going to follow this bonding curve. So it's committing to that without committing to a particular supply and the rate of growth, because like the, you know, there may just be like 10 massive users who come in in a month, in a month and mint a ton of tokens. So it's this, it's a very, yeah, it breaks that like speculative price reliability that you want you might want to yeah. have as a trader but turns it exactly. into more of this like cooperative exactly and you're getting tokens because you made a financial contribution so right. and the tokens that you're getting what we call project tokens because they're unique to each project they each have their own token um, those tokens are a claim on the overflow so all of the uh, funds that come into a project in excess of its funding target during a funding cycle can be redeemed by taking the project tokens that you received when you made a contribution and redeeming them in the protocol and getting that the proportion of those tokens over the total supply of tokens worth of the overflow. So essentially, it means that money that isn't earmarked as part of the funding target in a funding cycle is in this overflow uh, pool, and that pool it essentially belongs to the people who hold the tokens, the people who created the treasury in the first place. There's an extra uh, little wrinkle here, which is the reserved rate that Django alluded to. And the reserved rate lets you say, when someone makes a contribution, the project is gonna generate a bunch of tokens. How many of those tokens go to the person who paid the fee? And how many of those tokens go to a reserved list of typically builders or other people who have an interest in the protocol, but are contributing in a way other than financially? 
such as building it, building or uh, the project in, in question, uh, you know, doing something useful. So th typically that's like being a developer, being a community manager, maybe in some other projects, it could be being like a advisor or a venture capitalist or something. You might want to peel off some of these tokens and direct them at a short list of uh, reserved addresses. So this lets you compensate people who are making financial contributions with a stake in the project while also pointing a part of that stake at people who are maintaining the protocol without consistently making financial contributions. So more than just financial contributions are uh, rewarded and become stakeholders in the project. So those mechanisms are the funding cycle, the funding target and overflow beyond that funding target, the reserved rate, which point some of the tokens at a short list of people who are being helpful. And the redemption rate, we didn't talk about exactly yet. So redemption rate is uh, if I go to redeem my tokens and get a portion of that overflow, uh, if the redemption rate is 100%, then I get exactly the portion of the overflow that is my number of tokens that I'm redeeming over the total supply of tokens. So I get just a proportional share of the overflow directly into my wallet and the tokens are, are destroyed. If I set a redemption rate that's less than 100%, then I get that amount less than uh, than the the proportional. So let's say I set 50% redemption, excuse me, 50% redemption rate, then I'll only get 50% of my share of the total token supply worth of the overflow. So it's a way to sort of limit people's interest in essentially refunding their share uh, and to keep some capital in the project, uh, so that people, you know, maybe the project has some motivation for doing that. And the final a mechanism that I think is one of the core mechanisms is the discount rate. And what the discount rate does is over when you program your second funding cycle, if you set a 10% discount rate, then it, vanilla Juicebox projects issue 1 million project tokens per ETH contributed. So if you set a 10% discount rate in your second funding cycle, then in, in the second cycle, it, it'll only generate 900,000 tokens per ETH contributed. So you can sort of curtail how many tokens are being issued over time as the risk for being involved in the project diminishes. They'll roll over automatically. Uh, so you, yeah, the, you, you have like the overflow also serves as a, a runway in a way, since these funding cycles are just kind of looping. Uh, the discount rate will will tick down automatically just as time goes on. That was well, well put, Nicholas. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's it's useful for people to have a perspective because the point is that all of these tools are given to every person who wants to create a project. And a project could be something like SharkDAO we talked about earlier, or it could be a, a very small project that only has a few people who are going to be really responsible for the thing, but other people want to be supportive. We've seen charitable projects. Uh, we've seen large projects like Constitution DAO. So it's not it's not exclusively like DAO tooling trying to capture the DAO tooling market. Instead, I think it really these are mechanisms Django came up with through, through the process of development. And when I discovered them, I think the reaction a lot of people have is like, this is confusing. This doesn't uh, align to what I expect for like speculative ERC-20 hmm. token right. assets. And couldn't this be simpler? Couldn't you just remove all of these mechanisms and make it more like things I'm familiar with? And I think the, the challenge for people, which I've gone through myself, is to uh, I, I believe recognize that these mechanisms are actually interesting enough and essential to creating projects that allow uh, people to become stakeholders in the project itself, that they're worth learning and actually are significant in the same way that a lot of Ethereum concepts are were foreign to people before they were familiar with them, but ultimately have proved useful. I totally agree. I mean, they they each seem like kind of fundamental 
primitives or you know core building blocks that are needed to build and it's it's also interesting seeing the parallels between the these mechanisms and what Django was describing as like the original inspiration of like building a new type of company it, you know you have a unique perspective on this because you're operating juicebox using this protocol like you have the full closed loop yeah have you run into issues with any parts of this because i mean it's a very ambitious undertaking to design a kind of entirely new way to build a business like whatever we want to call these things from the ground up and completely reconceptualize the relationship between the shareholders the contributors like the cap table revenue flowing in shares yeah. being handed out like it's it's a crazy like ambitious creative undertaking and i mean like one you know just as you were describing like one of the things which i think you have an answer to is uh like how does the core team for instance like if there is even a notion of a core team like how do they plan for the future when the uh, shareholders are continuously opting into being a part of this journey and at any time can redeem their piece of the balance and you have this redemption mechanism which allows like the DAO to decide that no we want like x percent of it to stay here to give the team an extended runway are there things that you see as potentially needing to evolve to make this really really like click yeah, totally. It's It's been a big work in progress from the start. And I think we've been reflecting on it somewhat out loud. Uh, I used to write a lot of blog posts, like kind of short thought spurts. And I think that helped uh, stem some good conversations on ways we can tune these variables over time. We've definitely tuned the redemption rate uh, quite a bit, uh, going from low numbers like 60% to really kind of put the redemption price a little lower to incentivize funds staying in the treasury for longer. And then we've had periods of pushing the redemption rate up towards 100% to basically push the redemption price higher. So if you think about like an AMM price sitting between, it's always going to sit between the redemption price, which is the floor. If the AMM price was lower than the redemption, then it's worth redeeming tokens and then market making. Um, and then there's the issuance price, which is kind of the ceiling of the AMM. If the because you you can always get tokens by contributing to the treasury as opposed to buying them on the AMM. So we've, we our job is to kind of tune the floor and the ceiling, taking into account the balance in the treasury and the kind of outstanding token holders sentiment, right? And and that's been a, a big thing that we've we've moved around a bit to make sure that token holders they have agency over the funds. Mm -hmm. um, but also that builders feel confident uh, in the future that, that we're we're building. Um, mm -hmm. And that's confident both financially as well as uh, like everyone here is just individuals, right? So we all want similar flexibilities and freedoms and to work with other developers that share similar passions. Uh, and sometimes uh, depending on which stage of the journey we're on, that's going to fit better than others. Uh, a good example is this past year or this past, I guess, about a year now, since like maybe three months into the protocol, it became clear that we were going to need a version two of this protocol to really mm -hmm. uh, meet a lot of the initial uh, needs that people were making do with the original protocol, but it'd be convenient to have these other levers to make it more open-ended. Um, and so this, a lot of the past year was spent developing this, this V2. And so it was a lot of kind of 
eng work and architecting and, and, and testing and getting that right. Uh, and a lot of that time early on this year, as, as Nicholas was alluding to, it's not really uh, useful to to someone like Nicholas, who's trying to leverage tools to tell stories and build uh, auxiliary, auxiliary tooling to bring more use and, and traffic into the protocol. So the time off there was very warranted because we were just building shit and you're, uh, you know, <laughs> you're just trying to figure out how to be most helpful. But then once the V2 is out, then great. Now there's a lot of stuff to do, right? Now we can actually build. So, so that's a great unlock for a lot of what we wanted to do. And now we're working on one of our first extensions that we want to do as a DAO and like funded by the DAO uh, to really set some patterns in place that we think can then be re replicatable by other other folks uh, to really plug in some contractual outcome that happens when payments come into a treasury. And then uh, you can have some contractual custom outcome on, on redemptions as well. So is that, Django, is that one of the major differences between V1 and V2, would you say? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, just the extensibility and like you can bring your own data source and delegate for like what for both the pay function and the redemption function the the core juice box pay function was very stripped down trying to be as efficient as possible to accept funds and issue out project tokens so projects can now bring their own risk and their own expenses and their own whatever for for, for that that event and then we're gonna and we kind of make generalized tooling that project projects can plug in into but i think the big thing that that still a big work in progress and maybe forever will be. And this goes back to, to the nouns question. All Juicebox initially was is like a, a pay function. And the best way to express that visually is a text field that you put a number in and you click pay. And that's pretty a pretty boring way to fundraise. Uh, it's like the most stripped down thing you could possibly do. Whereas nouns basically, like the, the auction is basically a fancy pay function, a more engaging pay function. Right, right. Uh, and so what you can do is take any fundraising mechanic um, NFT wise or whatever happens in the future and then route it to the pay function because it's all contracts anyways. Uh, so then in, so now, like, wh why would I go to a project and click and send an ETH to it and click pay when I can instead buy a, a, a work of art or an article or something that they, a piece of content this project is promoting for that same one ETH. I pay a little bit more of gas maybe to actually manage the the, the extra storage, but it's it's well worth it. Uh, and so that's kind of the, the world that we're now stepping into now that the fundamental uh, structures are in place is how can we now create more generalized, compelling fundraising mechanics that projects can then take and make pointed applications out of. Yeah. So, so this, this V2 functionality, which essentially lets you bring your own additional contract with its own logic that will be executed when anyone makes a payment or when anyone does a redemption allows you a lot more extensibility, but it doesn't remove any of the functionality of V1. It just gives you the option to add your own stuff. So Django was referencing there the ongoing NFT rewards project, which will essentially check, uh, is the payment above a certain threshold? If yes, then issue the NFT associated with that uh, threshold, like tiered reward NFTs uh, based on payments. So suddenly you're getting NFTs issued based on calling the very same pay function you were calling before. Uh, simultaneously, I'm working on a little experimental project to see about making um, an NFT auction, something like the spirit of nouns, where the auction proceeds are pointed into a juice box project. And we're exploring if maybe the NFT itself can be, you can redeem, redeem the NFT for a portion of that overflow that we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. rather than directly dealing with the fungibles. 
so there's a lot there's a huge field for experimentation yeah. that's possible on the nouns question i think uh, a couple of the big differences that i see and uh, basically i don't think there's really like i don't think i think it's way too early to think about competition i, I always think about years ago oh, i met yeah. uh c-suite people from um uh, mastercard and i asked them about square it was like early on in the days of square and they said no actually we don't see visa or square or any of these things as our competition we see cash as our competition cash is the the big thing we're <laughs> we're fighting and I, I don't think we're so 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 much earlier than even any of that kind of logic in the space that i'm really interested in the way that juicebox positions itself as composable on-chain immutable contracts where mm -hmm. even if you have a v1 project when v2 came out it's up to you as the project owner to decide if you'd like to upgrade to v2 and and transport all of your uh your tokens etc your your community into the v2 protocol it's not something that the protocol can force on you so it's a very different logic to web2 dynamics mm -hmm. and uh, however there are some observations i have about the nouns thing that are interesting i think one one difference and and maybe an even better comparison for the redemption mechanic is the moloch rage quit yeah um and i think that's kind of redemption in Juicebox is sort of like a rage quit but it lets you do it like fractionally of your membership it's not a right. binary decision you can redeem a part of your token holdings in a project without exiting completely uh whereas yeah. nouns doesn't have that kind of mechanic built into it yeah but uh, you know i i i'd be interested to see how how they can work together actually are these things where a nouns uh auction totally. or uh treasury with the nft driven uh, Governor Bravo fork can be intertwined with the juice box. I think there's a lot of potential for composable contracts here. For sure. But the ecosystem can also surprise with how it grows exponentially, like exponential curves are really hard to grok beforehand. But uh, I definitely feel like we're in this early stage of even uncovering what these primitives are and what, how they could each be used. And yeah, I mean, one of the one of the interesting ways that the nouns mechanism could compose with the juice box mechanism is, yeah, nouns are uh, non fungible, right? So you have to you have these quantums of like capital and contribution that could be quantified in in a particular NFT, but you can't really like engage interface with people outside of that, other than paying them with the ETH in the treasury which also there's there's an interesting parallel to Juicebox of like conversations I read in the Discord, which is Django, you, you were kind of making this point of not paying people in JBX tokens, but instead paying them out of the treasury and giving them the kind of like option to go and buy JBX on the open market, which I think is also what Nouns tries to do. It just pays people in ETH and says, go and buy Noun with that in an upcoming auction. Um, it's very, very interesting. I, I definitely see, it, it reminds me a little bit of this airdrop thing because I feel another point of comparison or interesting dynamic between DAOs is where their point of origin is and how that informs their culture. I find totally. a lot of the projects who do these large airdrops uh, have really wonderful core teams, uh, but they end up giving this token and out and grow. it sort of it sort of becomes like a PVP token for who can extract the most value by selling at the high, mm -hmm. uh, rather than creating a community in which the people who hold the token are the people who actually want to engage in governance, rather than just like hodl until the uh, like the prime moment to sell. 
Totally. So I think there's there's more to be discovered about that. And, and that's actually one thing that I find really compelling about Juicebox, that the issuance of the token happens over time and can be directed separately from salary compensation. You know, I was listening to your conversation uh, the other day with uh, uh, Nadia Asparuhova. Is that how you pronounce yeah, it? Yeah. <laughs> um, and talking about salary compensation for open source projects. And I think Juicebox is really, to me, Juicebox DAO is one of the most interesting projects on the protocol because it's so totally. successful at demonstrating that if you have an open source project with on-chain revenues, you can have a, a project that both pays salaries to developers, full-time, part-time, occasional contributor, uh, and also creates this option for stakeholding in the project as it has a, a longer life than just the the duration of the salary that you're earning for the project. So I think there are interesting new models that Ethereum enables and Juicebox in particular enables around open source projects or really any project with an on-chain revenue stream. One of the things that I, I'm really interested in is like, uh, you know, Django referenced like me coming back, right? As the protocol is ready for, for exploring other things. I, I want to demonstrate to people uh, over and over again so that the message gets through that a Juicebox project can have multiple sources of revenue. So you could right. be dropping multiple NFT collections. You could have a DeFi protocol that it, uh, takes fees and points them at a Juicebox project. And that really Juicebox, although it's maybe has been popularized as an equivalent to like an ETH Kickstarter or something, actually it's much more like a bank account for running a decentralized organization. Right. It, ju it just has a notion of like debits and yeah, receivables. And it's, it's, exactly. it's more fundamental than that. It's like the building blocks of an on-chain organization or business. Exactly. And one, one aspect of this that I think is under uh, represented in the market's understanding of Juicebox is I think there's these open source projects like Juicebox protocol development itself. That's a, a good fit, but there's also all of these NFT collections, which are whether they know it or not open source projects with on-chain revenue streams. And I think it would be very interesting if those projects said, look, we're going to take 10% of our primary sales or 50% of our secondary royalties, some numbers, I, I don't know what the right numbers are, but point those at a juice box project and give the token holders of our NFT collection governance over what we do with those with those funds. And some projects have experimented with this, like Cryptodes and Doodles, I know both have DAOs, where the NFTs are governance votes in, uh, I believe it's usually a multi-sig treasury that they're using rather than an actual treasury protocol. But what's cool when you start using Juicebox for those things is you give people, um, like transparent information into how you're going to use the funds in advance of using them. So mm -hmm. I think it's very interesting to give communities, you know, if, if you believe that your NFT collection is a kind of community on chain some kind of metaverse community or, or whatever, then I think it makes sense to give them some power and to give them some assets to manage together to fund what projects they think moves the, the community forward. Yeah, something that I find very interesting in this conversation with, uh, with regards to managing funds and paying contributors, if the funds are themselves backing the governance asset, so in the case of Juicebox DAO, the JBX token is backed by the fund from the treasury, right? You can redeem the JBX and get funds out of the treasury. Then then you create this, this incentive of like, in order to justify spending on anything, the trade-off is the thing that you own will be worth a little bit less in the totally. meantime, right? And so you have this like tug and pull, and then you as a community have to decide your, your time horizon, right? Like, cool, all right, is it worth spending this much on a recurring basis to do the work to then create a system whose expenses maybe tend towards zero over time so that value can accrue? Uh, or is it worth just sitting 
and doing nothing, right? So in, in the case of these NFT collections, it could also be compelling to have those same NFTs backed by the funds in the treasury so that there's like a, a floor. And then the decisions to spend uh, aren't just like, oh, we mu- we have funds, so we must spend them. It's it's this interesting actual... Totally, because uh, you can't redeem them. Right. This is the equation that any kind of like business owner or operator should have in their mind at all times, right? right? Of like, is this dollar like invested, allocated, going to have a positive ROI? Or is it better to just pay this out in dividends? And I mean, there's some subjectivity in how each person evaluates the future of the project and mm-hmm. also dependence on the time horizon that they have, right? If someone's like looking to exit within three months, like they will make certain optimization, like a certain trade-off. But if they're taking like a 20-year time horizon or like not even like multi-century time horizon, they're trying to like build something that outlasts themselves, they would make a different trade-off. And we can even see this like in the case of Twitter, for example, and this battle they're having with Elon Musk, where they, I I think they moved past this discussion point, but like the management team could um, have a certain view of the future potential of this business. And then their acquirer is making the opposite case. And what's at stake is like billions of dollars. So very interesting to work through these types of questions with a community and then you know, what's additional here is that everyone always has the option to exercise this right, like according to the protocol, like there's always a right to exit and there's always a right to, to enter in, into the agreement. Um, so I think it will just naturally resolve itself into a different kind of like point in the, the game theoretic space or like how things evolve. Right. It's it's so interesting. And I think we're very lucky to have a a sizable treasury. So like huge shout out to everyone who's contributed to making this experiment possible. And then also an incredible group of developers and thinkers and storytellers. I, I don't know how this particular group ended up uh, floating into the, these discords and con- contributing, but a rare uh, group of albino unicorns, as as I've heard the group refer to to itself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's pretty special, but and, and everyone understands and enjoys the complexity of these conversations. So we we like to have them uh, often. We we like the whole compensation discussion are often my favorites because it, you really have to. Uh, create a sense of confidence and, and everyone has to really grok the trade-offs. And um, if we can enjoy the day-to-days in between these longer-term time horizons, I think we'll be pretty well off. Yeah. I'm really curious to to hear your thoughts on compensation and and you know the broader question of open accounting and doing all of this out in the open. And I'm curious about what you find inspiring or compelling or required about like this model, like that, that this needs to be the case. And then I'm also curious about like what kind of guiding principles or policies have you evolved in going about these sorts of conversations? Because they're very difficult ones to have. And this is one of the biggest questions I have about this kind of larger movement. And I I am very inspired by it, but I also uh, 
sometimes think that it kind of hooks into deeper human issues of like comparing oneself versus other people, like notions of fairness. And like, you know, I think people's estimation of the value they're bringing and the value other people are bringing and these things being, you know, people would rate these sorts of things differently. Um, people don't necessarily have a, you know, don't approach it from the point of view of, okay, like what is the market rate for these different things? How irreplaceable is this person? Like what are all the intangible values that they're bringing? So there's a lot of nuance and complexity around this. So yeah, just opening up this, this piece. And I'm, I'm really curious about what have you learned about navigating these sorts of things? I'm a big fan of open accounting. I think it plays itself out well over a, a longer period of time. Uh, if you're willing to be patient and have these discussions, if you're scared or trying to dance around these, these discussions, I think it's very dangerous. But then I think so is closed accounting in, in, in under the same circumstances. Um, it's like the goal essentially is that you, you want to create an environment that attracts other people who are going to be uh, like assets to the mission statement, right? To like the thing we're trying to do, which isn't juice box stop and find. It's largely web three, uh, Ethereum in principle. So it's, it, it's hard to draw boundaries, right? Uh, but the, the payout is a big component of that. Uh, it's creating an environment that people feel supported and welcome and, and, and encourages curious minds to come in and while also creating a DAO's immune system. So like actually facilitating conversations that actually critique uh, in a compelling way. Uh, sometimes you push, you try to find that line. Sometimes you push over the line, you figure out how to communicate your, your way around it. Um, it takes some moments of sincerity and then, you know, colored by many moments of levity. But yeah, you have to really create that DAO immune system that knows like, all right, how are you going to take in some random new idea or some random new influence uh, and make something productive of it or just kind of try to repel it from the system altogether. I think all these these behaviors are fairly healthy and we, there's a lot of kind of organic precedent that we can look at. I also think the, I guess on the line of the organic precedent, the like Dow mitosis concept is also compelling where if an organization is growing big enough to the point where maybe it's managing payouts and the DAO is making decisions for several unrelated, um, like smaller decisions and several un unrelated departments, if you will, like uh, evaluating front-end contributors, evaluating folks working on le legal frameworks, et cetera. It's, it's oftentimes better to skinny up kind of the, 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 the foundation treasury and then grant funds to auxiliary treasuries for mm -hmm. self-management. So it's leaner. And then folks can have a better conversation about how uh, their time spent relates to the, the group's cumulative resources. And I think mm -hmm. those are like, so creating little pockets of, of autonomy and of, of experimentation uh, mm -hmm. as well as just really structuring conversation and channels and, and not necessarily structuring in like a rigid way. I think Zug and the community managers of Discord have done a great job of just setting up a Discord uh, in a way that the that conversations can evolve uh, fairly organically. And also shout out to engineers at, at Discord too. I think the, the tools are pretty, pretty uh, useful. 
yeah, but mm-hmm. it's all about the people, right? It's 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 always all about the people, and the people are going to bring their their flavor, their, their taste, and just have to be totally. aware that like, hey, we're building internet shit, and there's going to be, and we're all a bunch of weirdos, we're all a bunch of <laughs> yeah. weirdos, and like that's going to express itself in all kinds of ways, and you like you better love it, or else like the space isn't right for you, right? Totally. So on, on the point of the creating smaller pockets, so the, like the analog to that in a traditional company might be, um, you know, there's like a product team that's working, you know, on a specific product instead of the management team, you know, deciding on that team's compensation and like, you know, trying to somehow keep it in line or balance it with other product teams, you just kind of give a grant to that team with an estimate of just like how valuable that work in that direction is, and Mm -hmm. then give them autonomy to distribute that however they want, hire the team, you know, grow the team, shrink the team, like whatever they want to do, as long as they deliver on the outcomes. Yeah. You can pursue other partners and business models. Now you have competition. So like, okay, cool. If you have better opportunities, and now we can find individual leverage across different things. We don't have to hold each other to like un- unreasonable constraints or rather like non-productive constraints that seem like artificially grounded. I think like just reducing, uh, always trying to reduce ourselves to individuals and, and people as opposed to these rigidly bounded teams uh, is, is useful. Like it's nice to have treasuries that you can manage payouts from, but those don't necessarily have to also correspond to like the thing that you pledge allegiance to, right? I think uh, we, there's always going to be floating around. There's always going to be cross-pollination and contribution a, a, across all these projects. So being mindful of that is also important. Um, but I'm a big fan of, of just trying to play out multiple experiments or at least have a, a, a situation that welcomes multiple experiments. Uh, so it's, it's tough to like really sponsor or get behind like the official something like you, you want to just totally. kind of allow space for things to happen and, and try to support those both socially and intellectually, like being part of the conversation. I think it's like the most valuable thing. And also financially, so folks can spend time on it in earnest. Yeah. This also rhymes with this concept of subtraction that we, you know, we kind of evolved at the Ethereum Foundation. And it's really about pushing out scope responsibility and mm-hmm. to two like players in the ecosystem rather than trying to do them inside of the foundation. Um, yeah. And I think, yeah, it's, it's one of the core kind of uh, mental models that I think is incredibly helpful when thinking about these organisms in crypto. I, I really definitely agree with smaller organizations. I think uh, I I was, I remember sitting in the airport in Paris and uh, experiencing difficulty with a flight and wondering if DAOs could have anything to say to uh, airlines. And I think the, the, obviously it's like a bit of an absurd question in a way, but I think the, the way that, that organizations like DAOs or the, the, the move, uh, the, decentralized organizations, if they would have anything to say to something like an airline, like Air France, it would be much smaller airlines that Mm -hmm. are maybe regional providers or something, rather than trying to use this model to 
directly recreate what exists in Web2, which actually uh, the nature of this kind of endless cancerous growth of organizations, I think could could be seen as, I mean, I, I, I'm judging it a little bit with those descriptors, but <laughs> well, sort in of, the case of airlines, it definitely seems like a good description. Yeah, I've had and, my, and, my fair share of painful interactions recently. Oh my gosh, it's 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 brutal, and it's because there's such a disconnect between the people who are making the decisions, the people who, if there is even anyone, if it's not just the the organization as its own organism that has no particular leader in a way, yeah. uh, that, that that's causing the people at who are actually executing the work in the airport to have to have bizarre, disconnected, distant, cold relationships with the customer, et cetera. There's just so many layers of bureaucracy and uh, abstraction that are not helping to achieve the goal. In fact, they're, I mean, or they, they've made the goal something different from providing a quality service. And I, I think the other thing is that sometimes we encounter people who uh, say things like, you know, so, some people are very obsessed with this idea of uh, like replacing Discord with a, a Web3 alternative. And sure, I, I, I'm down. If, if you find me something that works great, then we'll do it. But there's no need for new technological interventions to directly replace existing products, existing workflows, they are complementary. You know, we didn't destroy books when Kindles came out or when iPhones came out, we still have books. And we still have lots of older technologies that are still very good at what they are good at. And new technologies allow us to explore experiments with different paradigms and different affordances. So I don't expect DAOs to replace all companies. And I think if you're trying to do that, it's really, it is skeuomorphic. Uh, the what, what I, I really like the way Django f often frames what we're doing, which is as an experiment. It's not we're not going to pull our hair out to make it work for a situation that it doesn't apply properly. So I think we're just exploring what what does make sense. And for instance, you know, there are some things where we still rely on API providers who are traditional companies. If there are options where we can remove those from the process, then we'll do so. But we're not going to spite the product and the users. It, or, or you know developers whoever's interacting with the protocol just to stand on a principle where the solution that we can come up with if we're too strict about it is really just an inferior result so we have goals and ideals but we're also flexible and using what makes sense where it makes sense and part of having smaller teams that are more agile means that you can have multiple say juice box projects being service providers that are building front ends or doing community management. And maybe they have different approaches and maybe one of them has private compensation. Maybe they just take it into the project and then uh, you know, off ramp the funds and distribute them in some other way versus a project that does it openly. And we get to find out which one the Juicebox DAO community, for instance, thinks is more effective. So it, it's rather less didactic and top down and more, let's just see what happens and give people the, give everyone the option. You know, I think one thing I, I really think about Juicebox is that it's it's sort of like the tool set. We talked about those five mechanisms. I think it's really the tools that people need in order to create these kinds of organizations as if they were delivered from the future in which people already have what they actually need hmm. rather than skeuomorphic tools working, that are designed. Working our way from the present to there. Yeah, exactly. It, it, they feel delivered from a future to me. Um, That's a beautiful a future idea. That we, we might not actually get to if we only insist on uh, paying too much attention to what existing institutions expect of us. Yeah, you you almost have to take this inspired inspired leap into the future and and see if it works, if it all like shakes out. And the fact that it's all open source, well-known documented code is it's meant like we're meant to all eventually, like given eventual scarcity, we're, we'll be competing on grounds of how we organize ourselves 
as opposed to like the, the actual functionality. Because uh, you can just take and copy it, and theoretically, the mo more efficient operating schema should should be be cheaper, right? Or at least like I don't I don't think anyone is expecting to pay zero. I think this whole world is very much acknowledging that things cost money, and good things come when we pay good people to spend yeah. their time on on interesting problems. But I think that there's also this like from from my point of view, I can speak individually. Um, like I'm excited to finish up working on infrastructure for the Juicebox protocol and really setting a safe risk averse foundation for us to build on. And then I'm excited to spend time helping other projects that are building applications and, uh, and, and other stuff using the protocol actually come to fruition and then spin off projects of my own. <clears throat> so I don't, I'm excited for to pull my personal payout from Juicebox out towards zero over time. It's, I'm, it's, it's great to keep it where it is currently because it sets that tone that like, hey, I'm clearly out here spending a, a lot of attention on this. Uh, and so I encourage other people to come in and if you're going to do something similar, please make sure you're, you're taken care of. Um, but over time, as attention goes into other things, I, I think it's also healthy to tend towards zero. Mm -hmm. Make room for new contributors. M make room for new contributors or just encourage encourage the like the foundation like the 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 protocol as like a founding open source always running thing just to be somewhat finished from like a, a core perspective obviously it it creates a lot of avenues for people to bring extensions so further layers of opportunities and risk that sit on top of the protocol that could be funded by Juicebox DAO, but maybe in a more experimental way and not just paying people recurringly to solve open-ended problems. But in the early days, like today, it's really nice just to have consistency. So individuals aren't, we're not always just funding grants for projects where we're just paying people to be around and to, and to care about the day-to-day -day and to care about each other and to care about kind of the open-ended projects and create scope and solve problems. But tend towards a world where, hey, maybe we can we can acknowledge the fact that users are paying. Like, risk ultimately is going, is held by people transacting on this thing, and the cost is also borne by them via like the gas fees. And so, a, a lot of the opportunity is going to just keep evolving onto subsequent layers. And then I think value capture will also go there, and then and then hopefully the the juice box. Protocol and Juicebox down JBX can just kind of be more so managing a more like insurance pool and maybe occasional grants yeah. um, and certainly storytelling work as long as that's needed at a first first party uh, layer. But I think there's a lot of opportunities to create uh, yeah further layers of of opportunity on on top of the yeah. main Juicebox. Now. Totally. And if anyone feels that it's really necessary that there be a Juicebox V6 uh, that changes things they up, can then they can go do that. It's open yeah. source code. They can do that. And if they can convince Juicebox DAO that that's worth doing, then maybe they can receive some funds or in some way become the primary development contributors at a forever existing Juicebox DAO. And if they can't, maybe they can deploy their own code and you know totally. take their own fees and build their own institution. It's, it's very open. And I think... Juicebox and the tone Django and Perry and other early contributors have set is one where you asked earlier about are, are there core contributors? And I think that's something we really issue. It's like 
anybody can come in at any point and it really is a culture that we've cultivated i think successfully i'm really pleased with it at least so far where the best ideas are the ones that win and um we really give a lot of credit to people for being good community members in terms of pushing this kind of collective idea forward and bring what's the best part of them to the table, not just, uh, you know, oh, you're a front end developer. So you got to be really good at react and we don't want to hear about your, right. you know, your rock band. No, we want to hear about that because maybe there's some unforeseen connection that allows the protocol to develop in this like genuinely grassroots cultural way into unexpected places. And I think that's something you can really only achieve with open source projects that are really hardcore open source and enabled by this like global state machine that allows us to collect uh on-chain revenues for all these different projects regardless of borders etc yeah yeah huge shout out to everyone who's built infrastructure and culture uh yeah i, I want to ask about ef so it, does ef see itself as something that will eventually sort of uh dissolve I, I assume ethereum ultimately ends up being like a piece of solid infrastructure that doesn't see updates at some point is that the general philosophy yeah, I mean, I I want to be careful about speaking on behalf of the EF because I don't work there anymore, and uh, you know these are kind of deep philosophical questions. But I, you know, the way I at least understand the EF's mission is to, you know, the I, I've talked about this on a previous episode of the podcast too. I, I think it was maybe the one with uh, Josh Stark at the Ethereum Foundation who kind of like talked about some of his perspectives on on these on this stuff. But like the way I, I interpret it is that you can kind of imagine Ethereum, Ethereum's, you know, history and, and lifetime as, uh, you know, in the beginning when it was, when it, you know, when the Ethereum network was built, the protocol was built, um, the, the effort to do that was quite centralized, right? It was like, it's like almost like a, uh, I'm just thinking of this for the first time, but it's almost like a, you know, the, the big bank where like, it's this like dense core at the beginning. And then it like, it, it like starts expanding and opening up, but in the very beginning, you know, you can see the, the first programming language solidity being developed by the EF, the first client GEF being developed by the EF, the first conference DevCon being developed by the EF. And it's, it's kind of like doing all of the work required to get this thing off the ground. And then, you know, from then to present, there's been this uh, gradual decentralization of the EF very intentionally, uh, you know, and this is what the subtraction philosophy is referring to, is that unlike a traditional organization that's looking to continuously grow, right? It's trying to grow its revenue, grow its headcounts, like do all of this stuff. The EF is actually trying to shrink over time if that is like correspondent with the ecosystem becoming more robust and flourishing. So, so through its lifetime, it's basically tried to use its resources, like both its financial resources, its, you know, uh, whatever credibility it has to help uh, push responsibility and, and work out to the ecosystem. And, and this mirrors some of what you're describing with Juicebox, right? So, uh, you know, then, and, and there's moments. And so, you know, the, the kind of intuitive response when someone in the ecosystem is like, hey, I'm building a, you know, I'm gonna run a new hackathon series or a new events, you know, thing. 
the intuitive response is like a, yes, that's amazing. Like we want to encourage you to do that rather than, uh, you know, what a traditional company might think, which is like, oh shit, this is going to compete with what we're doing. Right. So, so then, you know, when say ETH global comes around the EF is like, yes, this is amazing. People who are aligned with this ethos, with the future of this ecosystem, we're going to do what we can to help them, give them grant funding, uh, and then help them become self-sustaining over time. And so, you know, that's that's just happened on multiple dimensions. It happened with funding public goods, with, for instance, Gitcoin grants. It's happened with, you know, a bunch of like the infrastructure with consensus. It's happened with the core Ethereum clients with now many teams building execution and, and you know, consensus clients that are soon going to be merged. And now at this point, the EF is playing a much, much smaller role in the ecosystem, but it's still, you know, kind of like stewarding some of, some of the core, both like practical functional things that need to happen and also some of the values. And the, the core functional stuff is for instance, you know, I mean, work on the merge to this point, but also, uh, you know, work on like sharding and data availability and these sorts of, these sorts of things. And, uh, you know, you can imagine some point in the future where that Ethereum becomes something analogous to the internet, where it just doesn't make sense to even conceive of there being like a, an, an org that, that is required for its like sustaining, you know, flourishing. And I think that's an open question, at least like, as far as I know of like, at that point in time, uh, what is the EF? And that there is probably still sorts of things that are that that an organization that's a nonprofit that's fundamentally aligned with this ecosystem can do. Uh, like it can think much longer term. It can think, you know, across uh, organizational boundaries. It can it can really like kind of help inspire these leaps. So there may be things for the EF to do even at that point, but the the real like through line is to get to this point and and like it's been happening that it's that the ecosystem is completely not re relying on this organization massive congratulations on that yeah huge huge body of work yeah it's it's super inspiring i mean it, it takes really special people to do this kind of stuff and i yeah so much respect for the people at the ef and i see i mean i honestly see mirrors of that in in juice box and how you guys are approaching things uh which is some of what i find really inspiring thank you that's a great compliment uh, yeah what ethereum foundation is doing is amazing I, i'm interested in how I, I don't know if it's been a problem so far but i'm interested in how with Juicebox, like for instance, I think Django has kind of led the charge with this idea that Juicebox protocol doesn't have a voice. It amplifies the Juicebox DAO can have something of a voice and its role should be primarily to amplify its contributors rather than to have a centralized style branded voice. And I wonder over time as contributors do lots of different things and people have different opinions and make different kinds of projects, how has if Ethereum Foundation, for instance, has ever dealt with like what is the EF's position on this rather than like, because I feel sort of in the social media brand environment, there's an expectation that brands have political opinions. And obviously EF has some opinions about infrastructure, but even then it, it feels like it gives a lot of autonomy to contributors. So I wonder how we can maintain that logic where it's the contributors who have opinions and 
whatever kind of consensus can be achieved among them is something like foundation or organization opinion. But at the end of the day, it really is everything should really be attributed to independent actors within the organization. Um, I wonder if that's like viable in uh, Twitter, Instagram kind of world. I mean, you know? it's 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 a question I know that folks at the EF have like really like grappled with and it's a nuanced one. And like one, one kind of example of it that I think a lot of like a lot of people aren't aware of this, but it like shows the level of like painstaking, <laughs> you know, like thought that, that they're going to is uh, so yeah, the EF doesn't represent Ethereum and they're, they're like totally distinct things. And I think they, you know, people there go out of their way to, always kind of say that, you know, our, uh, we don't, you know, it, it, any, any sort of influence is, is like soft, you know, it's soft influence and it comes from the credibility that has been developed over time through being a good steward for this ecosystem. But beyond that, there's really no hard control. And one kind of like interesting around like the branding and stuff is, so there's ethereum.org and there's ethereum.foundation. There's actually two different websites. And ethereum.foundation is the EF's website. And ethereum.org is meant as a, you know, ecosystem uh, ecosystem website. And so the entire like the entire process of like ethereum.org being developed as a website, like I know has been an ongoing thing and and the entire things like open source on GitHub with PRs and like people contributing and there's even, you know, some decisions around, okay, a new developer lands on ethereum.org and wants to build, you know, a, a new application, a new smart contract application. Wouldn't it be amazing to just have a tutorial right there that tells them use X, Y, Z tools in your stack and, and you're done. And instead, ethereum.org has chosen to not do that because it would have to like give preference to certain you know developer tools certain like rpc endpoints and uh and instead it's it has like multiple tutorials that it just kind of like puts you towards and those tutorials are written by people in the ecosystem so there's no official like this is the ethereum like tooling stack that you should you should use so it's yeah this this question of like uh the branding the voice and really like embracing diversity, like allowing multiple independent actors to pursue the good of the ecosystem and have those people occasionally co cooperate, occasionally compete and does basing your actions on what, what is best for like the overall ecosystem is, is a very interesting problem. And yeah, one thing I know they really think about yeah, Ethereum.org is a wonderful website and really inspiring, especially for some work. Uh, I'm working with other contributors at Juicebox DAO to build educational resources, exactly what you're talking about. I mean, everybody's seen the the wallet page, that, which is so unopinionated, uh, on, right. uh, just sort of lays tries to lay out the facts, which even that is contentious enough, I can imagine. Like, what, <laughs> totally. what are the, the facts? Imagine of, of building a up? page for like layer twos. Like what do you put on there? <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, but it is, it is uh, to me, it's like, and it's interesting. I'm just, I pulled up the page now and it says that it's inspired by the Mozilla developer network, which is another totally. really inspiring group of online or open source um, devs and, and community. I, I think the, it's a big question for us. Like, do we want to build educational resources that are directly financed by Juicebox DAO? or to pay contributors to build them directly? 
or and their sort of the responsibility of Juicebox DAO, or should we instead have Juicebox DAO fund like multiple parallel grants to orgs make to individuals or projects that they build that are going to create uh, parallel educational resources with different orientation? I mean, one thing that comes to mind thinking about Ethereum.org and tutorials is like not even you know it would be it would be wrong for the foundation or whatever the ethereum.org group is to push people in the direction of a particular programming language even right uh, so exactly it, it's, but you still want to be helpful you don't want to be completely neutral on every subject so it's uh it's a fine line but i, I find that particular effort really inspiring i think it's one of the best websites uh, on the internet as far as i'm concerned in terms of education and providing clear information about a complicated topic without bias or with you know, a, a bias that tries to mm, let people make their own decisions. Totally. And yeah, it has been a very complicated project. I've only followed from a distance, but massive shout out to Sam Richards, who, who's been, you know, driving that. And uh, I, I don't know the team as well these days, but I know multiple other people are involved. They've, they're just super thoughtful about how they've evolved it. Last question, thinking about the culture and the people inside of uh, Juicebox DAO and how interwoven that is with the decisions that the DAO makes and how, you know, just things evolve. I'm curious, like what, have there been particular crucible moments when you look in the past, there's been a precedent that's set or like important kind of guiding principles or philosophies that have emerged out of them? Like how, how do you look back on the cultural history of Juicebox and how it's evolved uh, to date? I mean, it's, it is an ongoing experiment. I've been, you know, one thing I noticed, we have town halls every uh, Tuesday at 6 p.m. U.S. Eastern time, at least. And we have consistently now, yesterday there were, or two days ago, there were uh, 37 people in the town hall. And I think after an hour and a half or so, there were still 35 people in the room. And we try to make an effort to keep things, you know, running a a good meeting. But I I also like to, at the end of the meeting, make time for anyone who's new or who didn't get a chance to speak to just say whatever, whatever they have to say, Uh, say hello or, or intro their project or, or just, uh, just ask a question or whatever it might be. And I think, I'm always saying that like 30 really dedicated people or even even just two really dedicated people, but at this point in our history, 30-ish people who are really dedicated to the project is more valuable than 100,000 uh, you know, fake followers on Twitter or whatever. Totally. So I've been really inspired by, I think Juicebox is also kind of a microcosm of this larger phenomenon I discovered when I first uh, started playing around in the Ethereum ecosystem, which is I noticed like, Oh wow, I'm I'm Canadian. I noticed. Oh wow, there's a lot of Canadian Ethereum devs. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> so I'm like, wow, there's a lot of Canadians around. And the way I read that, and over time, I discovered, in fact, there's a lot of devs from India, a lot of devs from Australia, a lot of devs from China, from all over, really, uh, from France, from from all kinds of places. And I think what it showed to me was that uh, a blockchain with a dedication to open source compared to something like Silicon Valley logic, you know, in the Silicon Valley logic, you have to move from wherever you live to Silicon Valley to get the best jobs, or you can work at a local outpost, but those probably aren't the top, top, top decision-making positions, unless it's like a a local strength in something like AI that gives you an office that really is leading the charge on a particular initiative. In general, there's this kind of gravity pull of, you have to go to America, you have to go to California, you have to go to the Bay Area. 
and that that's all right. The Bay Area is cool, but blockchains really unlock all this global talent. And the way I read it was, you know, Canada's got a great education system, uh, healthcare let you take some risks, do some, you know, switch job paths, leave Web two, try something different, uh, experiment in the evenings. I, I really admire that about Ethereum and about blockchains in general. And I think Juicebox has that also. So I love that we have such a ragtag crew of global contributors who maybe, you know, we're not like the CTO of whatever, but instead had a lot of talent and have found an outlet for that talent in our community. And it's a very permeable organization, uh, like I was saying. So people can come in and if they have good ideas and are contributing in an interesting way, they're going to get compensated for it. Uh, and we're not gonna we're, we're not gonna say, well, you live in a place where rent is cheaper, so we're gonna pay you less. Uh, we're not gonna do all these kind of mm, sort of punishing gestures that a lot of traditional organizations do. So that's 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 part of what I admire about the culture. Yeah, the the bring the name your own like numbers name like like basically people are responsible for coming in and saying what they want, what they need. No one's going to give you a templated anything, even though sometimes that's been called. I mean, we give you framing. I think that's been a, that's evolved over time as as suggestions. But yeah, like everyone has to somewhat develop their own sense of leverage, whatever that means. Which is exciting. It can be burdensome at times, but over a longer period of time, I think it plays itself out decently. At least reflecting on it now, it seems decent. I think one of the coolest things looking back though is recognizing in the year and some change history of the protocol being being public and accessible is we, we've seen a lot of momentary hype usage of the protocol, Constitution, DAO, Shark, Assange. And those were really great to get people in, interested in at least interacting with the protocol and then trickling, like those who are curious, trickling back into Juicebox DAO to ask more fundamental questions and, and, and getting involved. But over the scope of this past year, I think a lot of the people in the Discord and a lot of the people in these town halls aren't contributing to the core protocol. They're building projects. They're building like affordable housing projects in, in Houston or a food and wine startup in the Bay or, you know, all, all kinds of things all over the world. And so, and then there's a lot of cross-pollination of ideas where these project creators can now share insights over how they're configuring their treasuries and other more like IRL operational techniques that they're that they're using. And then we, people contributing to the base protocol then learn from that. And we all kind of are just a bunch of builders working on all, all kinds of things. And that's the coolest thing because I feel like my a large part of my day-to-day -day is just to listen to people's big ideas and ask questions that hopefully like lead to some uh, sense of strategy and then kind of find patterns uh, among all these projects and try to connect dots or be as helpful as I can without while also just leaving space for things just to happen over time. And the consequences right now, we've, we've just seen a lot of really uh, more complex, longer term projects start to emerge and they've been in development like in the Discord for the past year the scheming of how we might orchestrate this like studio DAO that can fund in indie films in perpetuity, right? And stuff like that. Oh, wow. And those are not startup weekend bootstrap a treasury, like LFG. Those are like complicated, yeah. like legal structures with like orchestrated, like sequences of treasuries that empower indie creators as well as, uh, as, as community members 
and there's a whole and there's like content bits of that and so we're about to see what? a bunch of these more uh like longer term longer oriented uh, experiments start to come out of the woodworks and 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 try to make a case for themselves and leverage these tools and uh, really creative ways. And I'm very, very excited about that. What, what is the shape of Studio DAO, for instance, or another one of these kind of more long-term oriented projects that you think is interesting? Just to just to provide a brief sketch so I can see what sorts of things people are doing. Yeah, totally. Studio DAO, there's a really great podcast on this done by Matthew and Briley that I highly recommend mm -hmm. and a series of articles. So, uh, And Studio DAO is now uh, on, on Rinkby. Uh, how it's organized is there's a main juice box project for Studio DAO. And then there's uh, each indie film being funded is its own juice box project. The tokens and, and payout distributions are organized in a way that links the, the projects together. So uh, Studio DAO takes a, uh, a fee from the, the funds raised by the project. Uh, the project in contributing to an indie film and helping to fund it uh, you mint uh, an, an NFT across three different tiers. So you have an option of how, of what level of patron you want to be for the film. And then that gives you access to be a member of Studio DAO, which then helps to decide which films it's going to put its weight behind. So all the funds accumulated wow. in Studio DAO then get pointed by the community to fund indie films along the way. And so their goal is to really create like a million person green light committee uh, that can just... Wow. Uh, you know, over time, funds will trickle in from the these fundraisers, uh, and then they can uh, essentially be, be recycled to fund further films. And it's just being led by some really incredible, thoughtful people who are uh, very entrenched in the media industry and have have been pushing the 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 uh, horizon on on the stuff since like early days of of the internet and of like of media. So. Yeah, yeah, definitely check out the uh, the Juice Cast episode with uh, Studio Dow. I think it's a mechanism we're still I'm still learning about how they're orchestrating the thing. They're using a an incorporated nonprofit association, I believe it is, uh, which is sort of one of the the hot structures for legal structures for DAOs um, right now. And I think it's going to be a really interesting experiment and and possibly really successful project. So the Juice Cast episode with uh, with Kenny is a great way to to understand how they're structuring it. Yeah, super interesting. And on this on on this last question, I promise on the point of uh, legal kind of like regulatory design, like what are what are models or you know sketches of different models that you think are interesting or could work with these more kind of like permissionless DAOs? I, I think it's a really cool concept to treat profit as a recyclable kind of pocket of resources to further the mission of the DAO. Mm -hmm. So the, con the contributions uh, made to projects can perhaps yield you NFTs or participation uh, in, in decision-making uh, and probably other stuff that we haven't even come up with yet and haven't, like, we don't have words for yet, but uh, the, from, from a sense of like RevGen, like treating the DAO's funds as a means for reinvestment, I think is pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. But I also think it's really cool to, to really try to figure out how we might shape securities on these platforms and really structure them soundly so that people can create experiments that are highly potent from a, a number go up perspective too, because we know like the power of these things. And I think what we're trying to do uh, at Juicebox from an infra perspective is really give 
creators and, and indie artists the toolbox to make sure that they're well-funded and supported in their creative endeavors. Uh, so however we can give people confidence in doing so, I think it's worth our while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've seen charitable organizations uh, like 501c3s uh, use Juicebox. Uh, Constitution DAO, if they had succeeded, uh, had an arrangement with endowment to use endowments mm. access to charitable status to custody the constitution and to uh, integrate it into a, a legal model that 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 is well known and understood in the U.S. We also see these experiments with UNAs, and there's some contributors who are working on sort of laying out frameworks that are available and that people can do further research into. But I think the truth is that uh, it's still very early days for figuring out what all the right structures and options are. Totally. And uh, and we're not alone in that. Everybody everybody's thinking about this too. There's some yeah. cool tools coming up though. A few contributors are are have been working a lot on these legal documents that are plug and play with Juicebox configurations. So like actually in the legal agreement that uh, is is either signed off on by someone who's, a, who's an official member or in, in, in Una's case, someone who who agrees from to uh, adhering to it uh, as they join the, the organization. Those docs can will soon hopefully be able to be templatized and then spin up where you can just plug in, all right, what's the reserved rate? What's the redemption rate? What's the discount rate? And all that stuff can right. kind of inform the legal standing of the organization. Um, and then we can obviously templatize some of the, these JB parameters to kind of give people a cleaner onboarding experience without having to uh, sift through all of these choices if they're trying to make a, a very simple thing happen, but give people the, the full suite uh, if, if they want something more experimental. Totally. Like something like Clerky or like Stripe Atlas for Juicebox, Juicebox projects. And it, it totally like that, the kind of modular plugin design and the fact that each project is kind of a new instantiation of a Juicebox project with its own parameters also means that people can continue experimenting with different models and kind of do their own research around what, what it should look like as a, as a fit for what they're building. Yeah, and because each project is its own entity and the Juicebox DAO has no access to the funds inside of other projects, they really are all independent. And although they share right. a protocol, uh, they can operate entirely separately from one another. And and we can't, uh, you know, nobody from the DAO can stick their fingers into their treasuries. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty cool because it really is making more accessible, some more advanced tooling than just like a ERC-20 deployer, for instance. It really gives you this totally. transparent treasury for a decentralized organization. So I'm excited to see how this legal stuff comes into the picture more over time. Amazing. Well, we've been talking for some time. Uh, I think we can bring it to a close. Uh, thank you both for taking the time. I'm super, super inspired by what you're building. Yeah, gonna be gonna be following the journey in the Discord. Thanks so much, this was great. Hey, I'm gonna make a small ask here. If you've been listening to these conversations and want to support what we're doing here, I would really, really appreciate if you could leave a rating and a review for the podcast wherever you're listening to it. This might seem like a small thing, but it will really help other people also discover the show. Thank you. I'm grateful to be able to do this and look forward to being here together again soon.